0: You're listening to Ecotones Now. We're a 100% independent, volunteer-run podcast companion to the award-winning site Environmental History Now, a platform to showcase the work and expertise of graduate students and early career scholars who identify as women, trans, and or non-binary people. I'm Emma Mosswild. I'm Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson. And we're your hosts for this season, Our Community's Voices. In this episode, Anna Sekulich shares on finding self in scholarship. During the fall of 2015, I adopted a 9 a.m. routine. Every morning, I would visit the Bosnian town Foinica. located an hour away from Sarajevo. It is guarded by the storied Ottoman gravestone on the right and the peaks of Vranica mountain on the left. Upon my arrival, I would follow the morning shade before I turn left to begin a steep ascent to the Franciscan monastery, which has been overlooking the town since the 1520s. The main reason behind my consistent visits to the monastery was to have access to the Ottoman archives it holds, which have been collected by the Franciscans of Oynosa for 400 years during the Ottoman rule. Having only recently embarked on my dissertation project researching the Ottoman history, I was lured by the idea of studying Ottoman scripts in Catholic spaces. However, my research didn't unravel much of the preconceived cultural contradictions between the Catholics and the Muslims. The two communities shared the town for centuries and had established ways of building both bridges and boundaries. Instead, my dissertation project wrestled with matters regarding the very nature of the archives and the landscape that surrounded them. I grappled with histories written not only on paper, but on land as well. Between land and paper stood my disabled body. In Fuenza, my research assumed a particular rhythm. I was poring over the documents in monastic archive between the daily treks up and down the windy road. Some days my climb was brisk. More often, though, I struggled to balance my prosthetic foot onto the steep concrete, which constantly sent a sharp pain to my knee. Snaking steeply from the valley, the road ended at a church guarded by a linden, offering a commanding view of the valley and the mountains at which the physical pain slowly yielded to pleasure. Moving through this landscape became an interpretative key to the stories I read on page. The chronicles told me that the monastery nestled in the forested foothills in order to hide from the Ottomans. But on my daily visits, peering through the archive window from which I saw all the street corners, courtyards, and minarets, offered additional insight. This place was as much about seclusion as it was about control and perhaps even superiority, heights clearly mattered. The line between walking and working became blurred in these archival peregrinations. Over time, I understood the monastery to be a point of topographical and spiritual intersections. It belonged to the valley, but also to the mountain. The French geologist Albert Bourdeau, while traveling through France in search for minerals at the turn of the 20th century, Described the monastery as a cloister in which the forested mountain slopes served as a wall. The mountain was the monastery. Its timber and spring sustained it over centuries, and the silver extracted from its depths furnished the sacred liturgical vessels. The monastery was also a gateway. It was a point from where herders and animals journeyed to the summer pastures at nearly 2,000 meters thus overlooking crucial seasonal migrations. At least once during the summer, the friars too ascended to the summit, saying mass to mark the day of the prophet Elijah and extending the sacred space from the church in the foothills to as far as I can see. Jess's landscape followed me to the archive. The documents urged me toward the mountain. While the monastery and the archive were spaces that I could navigate, The mountain was the end of the road. My body couldn't follow in the footsteps of the past protagonists. As a historian of environment, I was suddenly overwhelmed with a sense of inadequacy. For many historians, immersion in the environments they study is a matter of pride and lore. Roderick Nash, who famously paddled down the Colorado River, said that just as a scholar of the Renaissance needs to travel to Italy, I felt I was a more sensitive writer because I walked the talk in wild country. Walking the talk. The idea that insight comes from a particular type of physical exertion in inhospitable terrains. The seemingly innocuous phrase whose rhyme captures the implicit link between able bodies and trustworthy knowledge. This is, of course, the core of the myth of the western frontier and wilderness but its principles that privilege the able-bodied are built into other landscapes and other types of history writing. I tried walking and talking until I couldn't. If my legs cannot take me up to certain spaces, can my mind truly know them? I had always loved mountains. I love them, as Eli Clare writes, not a soft romantic love, but a deep down rumble in my bones. Even as a disabled child with fragile bones, I often looked for refuge under the thick canopies of trees daydreaming along the silent slopes of northern Istria. But after leaving the green embraces of home where hills and forests were a fact of life, I found myself among those for whom nature was about conquest and privilege, those who pushed their bodies to their limits. Story after story of appreciating nature Taught me that if I couldn't trek with heavy equipment strapped to my frail hips, I didn't belong there. Now the same doubt confronted me as a scholar. But this isn't particularly a scholarly question. It is a question of where disabled bodies fit in academia and in natural environments. Among many things, disability itself is defined as alienation from nature in literary texts and environmental discourses. Even more so, the knowledge about the environment is supposedly achieved by deep immersion in nature, where deep immersion equals lone battling with natural obstacles. I eventually claimed my place in scholarship and landscape by circling back to the archive. Page by page, I traced footsteps of the friars as they crossed the mountains of Foenza, Bosnia, and beyond, exploring the pathways that wove different stories and visions of that landscape. Friars, frail and fit, those who climbed the mountains and those who contemplated them from afar, all figured different ways to interact with nature and create meaning in it. For some, mountains stood for wilderness and spiritual isolation. For others, they were earthly paradise. Sometimes, they were a combination of both. My research turned into an enactment of Simon Schama's poetic definition of landscape, made of layers of rock as well as work of mind. My body finding ways to navigate spaces, both written and physical, made it clear to me that different bodies and different communities and narratives have also found different ways to exist in nature. Recently, well after the dissertation was printed and bound, I turned to the writings on disability and environmentalism. I was particularly struck by the observation by a feminist scholar, Alison Kafer. Natural environment is also built literally so in the case of trails and dams, metaphorically so in the sense of cultural constructions and deployment of nature and environment. This is a different phrasing of exactly the same thought offered by Shama and many others who claim that landscapes are always the result of molding physical contours into particular cultural meaning. However, disabled bodies rarely take that scholarly discussion. For me, though, it is as though I carried the questions of this dissertation in my bones long before I knew anything about Ottoman monasteries or history. so grateful to our guests for sharing their work with us today. You can find information about them, links to further reading, and a text version of the piece in the show notes. This work was originally published on the Environmental History Now website, alongside so many other brilliant and thought provoking pieces, which you can explore at envhistnow.com You can also follow us on Twitter at envhist now we'll see you soon with more community voices this show is produced and edited by emma mosswild and natalie joe rose wilkinson with music provided by natalie joe rose wilkinson and christine murphy special thanks to elizabeth Hemeteman, to this season's contributors and to you for listening